Hi, y'all. We are back for another episode. And today we have our first pediatrician on the podcast. And I'm really excited about this. So you may have come across his account. So Dr. Phil Boucher, he's got a growing account on Instagram. And that's actually how I I think I initially connected with him. It was either that or LinkedIn, providing lots of education. But one of the things we're going to talk about the mix of autism care and pediatrics today, as well as I want to touch on this idea of direct primary care. In case you haven't heard of it yet, I think it is an amazing way to be able to get support. And it's really in line with how I approach my psychology practice with concierge therapy, and assessment. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well-being as a parent, supporting your non-autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So, Bill, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. I'm, I also found you on Instagram or LinkedIn or something like that, and your content in, for the autism community is just so refreshing and helpful, so I'm excited to chat. Thank you. I appreciate that. So why don't you give us a little bit of background first on you, your life as a pediatrician and your life as I know a dad and a husband as well. So give us a little introduction. Yeah. I grew up here in Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where my practice is. And I've been a pediatrician in our community for 10 years now. About two years ago, I started my own practice and we can chat more about that. But I've always really loved taking care of autistic kids and supporting them and supporting their family. And since I started my new practice, I have the ability to deep dive on the areas that are more interesting to me or places where I feel like I can really help in our community. And that has been a place where I've really found a passion is helping children from a diagnostic standpoint, those that are seeking a diagnosis, like everywhere in the country, it takes a long time to get a autism evaluation. And usually there's a bunch of signals before that. And sometimes they're taken seriously and sometimes they're off or said, oh, that's normal or we'll just keep watching or those sorts of things. And so there's a long delay when it comes to, okay, I think we need an autism evaluation to actually getting in. And then the cost can be really prohibitive too for families. And the fact that I have my own practice now, I can just make up the rules and do what I want to do, which is I want to make it easy for families to get in when they want a developmental evaluation, when they want an autism evaluation, when they want an ADHD evaluation, those sorts of things where they may have come up against hurdles before. We're able to just say, yeah, we we can do that. And so that's really led me to really embrace, okay, how can we support the community in other ways, especially when it comes to children with autism and their families. And that's really where my passion is, is educating families uh, about pediatrics and about parenting. And, and one of the facets in there is autism. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So just for listeners, would you say that what you do is pretty typical or is it pretty rare for pediatricians to offer these type of services? It's not very common. It's becoming more common, though, the pediatricians are taking on the diagnostic point part of the autism evaluation because there's such a delay for families and because we know that earlier diagnosis improves and helps children to thrive. If we get them diagnosed earlier, then we get them support services and get the family educated and all those sorts of things and just make parents feel like they can understand their child and their child can feel understood by their parents. And I think there's more of a push and a more of a realization that's in the wheelhouse of a pediatrician, especially when it's straightforward and that it's something that we can do and we can offer to help with the long waits and delays that often accompany those developmental concerns that come up. And so it's not super common, but I wasn't the first person to do it. And other pediatricians that are doing it were the ones that told me that I should do it. And so that's how I ended up getting trained and starting to do those evaluations. But I would love to see more and more because I think there's just more and more growing demand, public awareness, desire for being able to get that diagnosis in a timely manner so that we can have the resources that we need to help our child thrive. Yeah. I'm curious, have you found any obstacles in doing it yourself? For example, insurance companies recognizing it or other providers recognizing the diagnosis? That's a good question. And I really haven't experienced that yet. I could see some providers saying, we don't accept that. But I think most parents, when they find us, have already come to the point of, I'm concerned enough that I want the evaluation, even if my current pediatrician just doesn't think it's important or valuable or just wants to wait. There's something that's pushing them to know. And then from an insurance standpoint, no, in terms of getting them the therapies and supports and ongoing things that they need after the diagnosis, that really hasn't been an issue yet. But it's definitely something that varies by state. And that's an unfortunate part of our healthcare system is everything is so local that you have to check your local state regulations before you even explore the idea. And there might be bureaucratic red tape that, uh, you know, makes it so that you can't do those sort of things, even if they make sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I know you said like for cases that maybe have more obvious symptoms, those a lot of times you're saying like, okay, we can do the evaluation. What are you doing in these situations where it is a little bit more ambiguous? Is it possible right. a parent comes to you and you're saying, I, I can't do this or referring out? How do you navigate yeah. Absolutely. I think that's like where we have a thriving community of child psychologists and others in the community that can handle those more difficult cases. And so if I can just relieve that burden a little bit, then that would be great because I think most pediatricians are very adept at recognizing 80 to 90 percent of autistic children out there just because we've, we see thousands of kids every year and we get a sense for neurotypical neurodivergent. But I think that if we can then alleviate some of that burden on the child psychologists and those that can do more advanced training, more advanced diagnostic things or um, can work with those more challenging cases, then that would be a win for me is if I can just eliminate their need to see a lot of the ones where it's pretty straightforward and we, we have an idea of what's going on, but we need some formal testing so that we can get approved for, for therapy and those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And it's interesting. I want to push a little bit. You said 80 to 90% of cases you feel like pediatricians can identify. I will say 
sometimes I see that's not the case, that there yeah. still are. The, and I think you're maybe an exception, but okay. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Oh, that's a good point. I guess that that is speaking from my interest in autism and my personal biases mm-hmm. of that, but it it's probably, you're probably right that it's lower. I think the thing that makes it hard is the very limited amount of time that pediatricians have with any given child over the course. They're, you're their pediatrician for years and years, but when you break those down, especially if you're in a practice where your pediatrician is seeing 30, 40, 50 patients per day, that's a really tiny slice of time. And then they're often seeing somebody else when they're sick or something along those lines. And so they're not getting all of those kind of touch points to check in and see development other than at those well checks where there's all the other things. Like it's not just the social, emotional learning development. It's the food and the weight and the sleep and all those other things that it can make it really challenging to pick out those that aren't just screaming at you. And so I think that's one of the challenges in a, in a typical practice is just the speed of the visits that makes it hard to have the time to take those concerns seriously and to just sit with the child and see what's going on. And we do the ADOS here, but a lot of times we can do a really like a miniaturized version of that and at least get a good sense of, is this something we need to explore further or am I really not getting that sign at all. And especially if it's, I'm not getting that sign at all, then that makes me feel confident. And like, we have time to just see how things play out. But I think that's part of the reason that I started this direct primary care model is so that I had more time with patients and I didn't feel that rush. And we were able to have those visits that were longer where we get to see and interact with the child without feeling the rush to get through all the things that you you have to cover. Yeah, definitely a higher quality of care. You're able to provide in those situations. I'm curious, how much training do you feel like you got in on autism, like in med school and in your residency? And what do your colleagues similarly feel? Not a ton, to be honest. Most of what I know about autism has been, well, from the like training that I did to get approved to do the the ADOS exam, but also from my own learning, reading, researching conferences, those sorts of things. I feel like in in medical school, you get the wide breadth of everything. And so it's a half an hour lecture here or there specifically on that. And then in residency, it's a lot of, you might be seeing children in the specialty clinics that one of the things that they have on their problem list is autism. And then they have all the other things that that lead them to, to be seen. So I think a lot of it is more that on the job and over the experience as a pediatrician that, that one, you get to pick up, okay. I've seen a lot of four-month-olds and four-year-olds, and here's what a neurotypical child typically does at those pages and stages and all those sorts of things. That helps to get a sense of this isn't quite fitting in with the neurotypical patterns that I see, and then what are the signs and symptoms or what are the signals that I need to look for when it comes to maybe we need to do a little bit something more, the questions that parents ask. Those things start to, you, you start to get a good sense of those. And it makes it easier when parents are telling you this and this, that is something that I hear in less than 1% of parents of two-year-olds that my child does this. Maybe that's something that we need to explore a little bit more. Whereas early in my career, I wouldn't have had the breadth and volume to feel comfortable with that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I know I do this because you'll reshare them sometimes is like my Dear Pediatrician series. Some of it is like I do in many ways think 
I, I'm getting a lot of parents that are like, my pediatrician isn't listening to me. I've been concerned. And I think that's such a hard experience, but yeah. I also like to reframe it that I don't know if we're setting up pediatricians all that well to be able to capture the heterogeneity that exists in autism. And totally. like you're saying, such short visits. So my brain a lot of times goes to like, how do we start to solve this like system-wide issue? Yeah. It's one pediatrician's fault, but that's a hard battle to take on too. But I'm yeah, I, I don't think we're, I don't think pediatricians are set up for success in recognizing or diagnosing autism early. And I often think it does take a lot of prodding and advocacy by the parent that it shouldn't have to, because you should be your child's advocate, but you shouldn't have to push to be their advocate or go around them to be their advocate. But I think the way that our system is set up is that people are paid for, in general, you're paid for the volume that you see in clinic and you're paid for procedures that you do. And in pediatrics, there's not a lot of procedures to do. We're not doing appendectomies or heart transplants or those sorts of things. And so it's a volume game in order to stay in business and keep the lights on and pay your staff and all those things. And primary care is already at the very bottom rung of the pay scale for physicians and medical school debt and undergraduate debt and all those things lead people to not go into primary care. And so you're really like setting up a system that doesn't reward you for going slowly and being methodical and being slow to go on to the next patient and to deep dive into the question that they that parent asked because they phrased it in a really specific way that you don't hear it said that often. Let's explore that a little bit more. You just those things don't exist. So I think if you're going to say what at a system level, it would be more time with patients. And that would require an overhaul of the way that doctors get paid. And uh, there's huge lobbying forces to not change that in any way. And so those are some of the systemic issues that you're up against. If you're going to say, I want pediatricians to feel more comfortable with making the autism diagnosis and, and taking that. Because then when it comes to maybe pediatricians should just do the diagnostic test themselves. One, insurance typically won't cover it. If I was in a clinical practice where we submitted to insurance, the likelihood of insurance paying is pretty low for an autism diagnosis. And it certainly doesn't make sense from a time perspective of I'm going to do an autism interview with the parents, and then I'm going to do a hour long, 90 minute, whatever it might be, ADOS exam. That's 15 checkups that I could have seen during that time. And it doesn't make sense for organizations or institutions to support that because it takes away from all of the revenue generating activity that they could be doing because it's a volume game and we need a different system that doesn't reward volume if we want people to go slowly and do those things that take more time. Yeah. Wow. So many like great points and perspectives there. And for parents listening to this right now, we're not trying to make this like a hopeless situation, but I do think understanding the landscape becomes really important. So oh, for sure, I'm curious from your perspective, let, let's take it to like more application for parents now. What do you recommend parents do that if they're getting, they do have concerns about their child's development, where to start and then what to do if they actually get some resistance to that? I think the, the best place to start is with your pediatrician because they have a, a lot of good resources and a ton of experience in seeing children and watching development unfold. 
The thing that I love is that I get to see kids from when they're born until they go to college. And so you get to see all those stages and I get to watch a ton of children go through all of the developmental ages and stages that they go through as they grow. And so it makes it easy for me when a parent comes in and they've got their one child and they're six months old and they're not rolling over and they're worried because some app or Instagram influencer told them you got to do this by this date. I can say, sure, most kids do this, but I have the breadth of volume of patients that I've seen as a pediatrician that I can tell you that it's very likely that they're going to do it in the next month or two months. And if not, then we'll start to fret or figure out what's going on. And so they have a lot of experience. Sometimes though, you do as the parent have to say, I'm the expert in my child. And yes, you see them. And yes, I fill out your forms and here's what we're missing. And here's some data. And I need us to make the next step. And sometimes that comes to, okay, I get that you don't have concerns, pediatrician. I still do. And I'm not going to sleep easily until these concerns are addressed. So pretend that you share these concerns. What would the next step be? And can we just do that? I know that you might not be supportive of that, but that's what I need in order to feel good about my child and um, myself as a parent. And so please humor me and let's have a, a, a relationship where we feel comfortable saying, hey, I, I may be overreacting to this, but I really need some peace of mind. And I'm not feeling that peace of mind right now. And so what would be the next step that we would take? And can we make that next step, even if it turns out that it wasn't a thing or that things changed in the next six months? Can we at least make that little tiny next step that would say we're doing something to get to the bottom of this? And I think that's what it takes often, especially if you're feeling that resistance or that pushback. And you as their parent, the parent and the expert on your child are saying, this isn't going as I expected. Something isn't adding up here. I need more information. I need more time to talk through with what I'm going through and what I'm seeing. That's when you push and you can push back because you're the expert on your child and you're their best advocate. Yeah. I'm sitting here smiling and nodding because I say this all the time, but I wanted to hear your perspective on it. And I just love you gave some great language. And I love some of the like collaborative language too, and like just naming what's going on. So that is awesome. And to hear that that is a similar approach that you suggest taking within your pediatric community. And I find that approach usually works pretty well. And to be honest, if you're in a really busy practice, they may just be more quick to refer you out because of not having the time to sit and talk through those things or give you the reassurance that you feel like you need or the perceived reassurance that you need that they're not able to provide, then they might just refer you out more quickly, which would be helpful in you getting to that end goal of getting that evaluation or getting the the support that you need. It sucks that it often comes to that and that it's not more collaborative or collegial. Um, you're the expert on children's health and development and growth. I'm the expert on my child. And here's where we can overlap and share our expertise and where those two line up and, and what we're seeing and those sorts of things. That would be ideal. It doesn't always or often in some cases happen that way. And so we have to, as the parent, push a little bit more, realizing that if you as the parent are more worried about offending your pediatrician than getting your child the evaluation or the support that they need and that you need, that it's probably not that great of a relationship if you're more worried about offending your pediatrician than getting to the bottom of what's going on with your child. And so I would just encourage you, if you're feeling that way, to reevaluate 
is this, am I really feeling that way? Or is it just my perception of doctors that they have big egos and those sorts of things? Or is that the case? And I maybe need to reevaluate whether this is a healthy relationship if I don't feel like I can push or if I can't share my concerns in a safe way with my child's doctor. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. I, I love that perspective. And it is a relationship. But what's interesting too to think about, it, it happens at every level of like medical care. Because I sure. even know being in an academic medical center, what my bandwidth was to see a patient for an autism evaluation versus what it is now. And this is mm -hmm. where we've stepped outside of the traditional models to be able to provide that more hands-on care. But I also love that idea of who cares if you offend this person, right? If it's going to get you the support that you need for right. child. Um, yeah, you should feel totally comfortable if it means I'm get, I'm advocating my for my child as the expert on my child. It, and, and that means I might offend my pediatrician. But I'm going to do that because at the end of the day, my relationship with my child and getting them to a place where they can thrive is more important than my relationship with my pediatrician. That I'm okay with that. And that that just has to be okay because I'm the expert on my child and I'm their advocate first and foremost, not my not just doing whatever my pediatrician says uh, is best with their expertise, but limited time with my child. Like I do know best for my child is how I would approach that. And it's interesting too, to think of if they get referred out and they're not feeling for that type of thing, the likelihood you're going to see this provider who's diagnosing your child again is pretty slim. So you can worry even yeah. less about offending that person. So right. just, exactly for sure. Yeah. And I think it's so funny. Some of the language you use about like the expertise and like the collaboration, like I, pretty much use that verbatim, just tweak it to what my role is. So I love that. Let's talk about if the child is already diagnosed as autistic, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that you are commonly seeing like parents of autistic kids come in, talk about just so parents know what they can bring up to their pediatrician? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. The two biggest things that we talk about is how can I get my child enough sleep? Are they getting enough sleep? What can we do to get them more sleep? And then eating, which often comes down to, are they getting enough nutrition? Are they getting enough variety of foods and macronutrients and all those sorts of things to grow and thrive? How can we expand their sleep? and they're eating. Those are the two big things. And then sometimes there's other medical comorbidities that go along with autism, seizures being one of them. I think it's something like a quarter of autistic children also have seizures. And so sometimes there's things like that, like monitoring that, managing that, what to expect if that were to happen. Sometimes the seizures will start, like we'll have seizures and then we'll get diagnosed with autism at some point in the future after we already were diagnosed with epilepsy or having seizures and we weren't sure what was up. And sometimes we'll have autism diagnosis, and then at some point in the future, we'll have seizures. So I think that's another one that often comes up. And then the other thing I guess is, and this has been coming up more and more lately, is the genetic evaluation for autism or the metabolic 
diagnosis or diagnostics when it comes to autism. Okay, we've diagnosed this child as autistic. Are there things that we need to do from a diagnostic standpoint to try and see, is this something in their genetics? Is there something underlying from a biochemical perspective that we need to take into account? And there, there's a lot more information on that than there were in years past. And so I think that's another common issue that comes up that we discuss. Yeah. Talk about the metabolic testing a little bit in case parents don't know what that is. It's not one that we often do anymore if they're already thriving and developing in other ways in terms of growth and development outside of their autism diagnosis. But essentially, there's all these metabolic diseases out there that can cause a buildup of different metabolites. So we're talking about if you've ever looked at your can of diet, Dr. Pepper, it says, attention, phenylketonurics contains phenylalanine. So phenylalanine builds up in the blood of people with PKU and it's toxic to their cells. And so if you have PKU, you don't want to drink diet, Dr. Pepper, or other things with excess phenylalanine in it. Sometimes there's metabolic pathways that will lead to like toxicity of the metabolites. And then those children can also have autism. Nowadays, there's essentially universal screening for most of those metabolic conditions at birth. And so usually that's something that we would have already known about in the first months of life, even if they're having other issues, seizures, developmental delays in other capacities, motor growth, nutrition, then sometimes it does come up. Okay. We're going to look and make sure their amino acid profiles are all normal. We'll get some blood. We'll get some urine, those sorts of things. But by and large, the newborn screen covers a lot of those specific illnesses. And so we usually have a good sense of that, assuming that they were born in a U.S. hospital and had that done when they were born, then we can be pretty confident that most of those are unlikely to be the case. Okay. That makes sense. And then talk a little bit about when parents are coming to you with sleep difficulties. What are some of like your go-to things that you're talking through and how do parents yeah. when they need to see a specialist for sleep? Autistic children often have more difficulty with sleep and both onset of sleep and then maintenance of sleep overnight. So like going down to bed is hard and then staying asleep throughout the night can be hard too. And then it can be challenging to know what behaviors are we seeing that are in part or in large part because of just poor sleep and fatigue and all of those, the ways that those affect sleep or child's behavior. What I typically do is I do a lot of like sleep coaching for families in my practice in general. And essentially I just turn up the dial on all of the different aspects of it when it comes to children with autism in terms of a quiet evening routine. Like I'll say for a neurotypical child, at least 30 minutes and for an autistic child, it might be like an hour and 90 minutes of just like calm winding down activity, which may limit all of the evening activities that we can do because we have to have kind of a larger buffer where we're calming down. Now, in some cases, we'll say no screens. In some cases, for some children, screens can be more calming. And so it, it varies case by case, uh, especially for autistic children, what's, what works best to help us calm down. And then I'm quicker to jump to things like melatonin. In general, I try and avoid melatonin until we've exhausted a lot of other lines of sleep hygiene. It seems, and there's studies that show that children with autism tend to respond more rapidly to melatonin, or it works better in that specific population. And so for autistic children, I'll usually jump on melatonin 
earlier in the process to see if that will help to get their sleep onset better. And sometimes that does help with sleep maintenance overnight too. The melatonin does. Okay. And then one thing I hear come up a lot are like sleep studies. How do you, when a child needs a sleep study? By and large, sleep studies are useful for, is there something more that we need to do for our child's sleep? And what that looks like is sleep apnea is one of the big things. Is my child having sleep apnea that is contributing to their poor sleep? And so usually if a child doesn't snore, the likelihood of them having sleep apnea is pretty low and we don't need to go down that route. Restless leg can be another one that's common in autistic children and neurotypical children. One specific thing in the autism realm is if they have a limited diet and they're not getting as much iron in their diet, then you can get restless leg because of iron deficiency anemia. And so that might be something to explore. Like you don't typically have to go down the sleep study route because doing a sleep study is like doing an EEG, but 10 times more challenging in, in children in general, especially in autistic children. Like we're going to go to a sleep center and sleep, not in our bed and have all these things on us, not an easy task to accomplish. And so that might be something where you're looking and making sure that they don't have iron deficiency anemia. If you're concerned that they are excessively restless in their sleep and they have a limited nutritional repertoire that they eat on a regular basis. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Anything else on the autism side that you commonly find yourself talking about with parents that you feel would be helpful to share? I know we've covered quite a bit already. I think that helping families to understand what autism is and isn't is really important to me. And so I spend a lot of time redirecting when they talk about, when they frame it in a way that makes it seem like it's something that you want to avoid at all costs. If it's something where we're talking about red flags or things along those lines, I definitely try and reframe it in a more positive light that we have neurotypical children and we have neurodiverse children, and they both contribute to the world in amazing ways and are both equally important and valuable. And so I think there's a lot that I do for families and in my content that I create online to really make sure that families feel like autism is a different operating system rather than my child is broken. And I often will use the analogy of operating systems on a computer. Like most of the world is on Windows in the business world, right? In the creative world, your Pixar movies were all made on Macs. In the space race, Linux was what was used on the space shuttle and all those sorts of things. There's room in the world for different operating systems, and they all contribute in different ways to the beauty of our world and society and all those sorts of things. So I think it's a lot of reframing that too, so that people don't feel like they're going to be marginalized or that they're less than or um, that there's something wrong with their child when they're just different. And that's what makes the world great. The book that I really like is Uniquely Human. That's one book that I often refer families to as well when we're talking about autism, because I think that just paints a really important and beautiful picture of what, what autism is and how we should look at it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that for me stood out about your account is that you are using this neurodivergent affirming approach. And I think it's been slow to make its way into the medical model. And oh. so I love that so much. Even even like the name, like I, I typically will oscillate between 
autistic child and child with autism, just because whenever I say one, somebody comments that I should be saying it the other way. And so I just try and oscillate back and forth and then educate when people bring up, you shouldn't call, you shouldn't say it that way. You should say it this way. Things I think those are really important opportunities to educate in a way that helps people to understand neurodivergence. And it's important to me to make parents feel understood and heard. And so that is one of the ways that I try and bring that up. In this interview, I keep oscillating and I think, oh, I'm saying child with autism too much. And now I'm saying autistic child too much. And, and it can make it hard sometimes to communicate. But I think if you're intentional about it and then explain your work, then it makes it that people understand more, more easily. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure like I was, you probably were trained with person first language, like child. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. So that's been an adjustment, something new that I've had to learn and implement. And it makes sense. And I can defend myself uh, in my online comments now quite easily when I say autistic child. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's enter into this world of direct primary care. I guarantee there are parents listening to this right now that have no clue what direct primary care is. Start there. So direct primary care is a model of primary care where instead of the typical, I've got my insurance card, which doctors can I see? Okay, I can go on their website. I can find these doctors and see them. Then when I go in for my kid's sick visit, I have a copay and then I get a bill in the mail three months later for the rest of the balance because we haven't met our deductible. In direct primary care, direct means we work directly with the families rather than through the insurance as the middle person. And so what that looks like is we do a monthly membership fee and that covers all of the care that your child needs. So there's no copays, there's no deductibles, there's no visit fees. We do unlimited visits. We allow texting because in a traditional model, like insurance companies don't want you texting your doctor. They want to make it hard for you to reach your doctor so that you don't reach out for small things uh, because then the insurance company has to pay your doctor for dealing with those small things. We want parents to feel reassured and heard and comforted when they're worried and supported when they're not sure what to do. And so texting allows us to do that since we don't have to justify the way that we connected with parents to insurance companies. So a lot of our care is provided asynchronously over text message and email and telemedicine visits where we're able to care for them outside of the office where a typical practice, you have to go into the office for everything because that's the only way that your doctor can get paid is you coming into the office and talking through the rash that was there last week that's gone now and showing them the pictures and, and saying, couldn't I have just texted you these pictures that my child doesn't even have the rash anymore? So that's what direct primary care is in a nutshell, is it's a, a membership-based pediatric care where you get unlimited access to your doctor through a membership fee, and then you don't have to worry about all of the little charges that add up over time and meeting your deductible and all of those insurance things. So do you guys not bill insurance whatsoever as part of so- the for so we do for the big stuff. So parents pay huge insurance premiums and we want them to get something for those insurance premiums. And so for things like vaccines, lab, radiology, specialist specialist visits, those definitely go to your insurance. So you're getting something for your insurance premiums. But we when your child comes in because you're wondering if they broke their arm or they have a stuffy nose or they're having more anxiety at school, we don't send those to insurance. We don't bill for those visits. It's all just covered by your membership fee, just like your Netflix or your gym membership. Like you don't get paid every time you hop on the treadmill, you just get the monthly bill. And then that gives you all the access that you like. Very cool. That's awesome. And for you, what made you transition to this direct primary care model? I chose to switch to direct primary care because I wanted to have better relationships with families. 
where it wasn't rush, rush, rush from room to room. And if we talk about something that's outside of the scope of the well-child visit, I have to charge you extra. And then we have to talk about all those sorts of things. And we only have 12 minutes for this visit. I wanted the freedom to spend as much time with families as they like. And I wanted the freedom to be able to deal with things over text message that are easy to deal with over text message, rather than the inconvenience of, if you want to talk about your child's stool holding, you're going to have to come into the office and you're going to have to bring your child to and pull them out of daycare and leave work and all those sorts of things. That's probably something that we can just talk about over text message or email or a quick telemedicine visit. There's all those different times where I was like, this is not the most efficient way that I can do this. I'm not being a good steward of my parent, the parent's time or their financial well-being with the way that we're able to practice with insurance and because of insurance. And so that's really what made me decide, okay, this is a new model. It's catching on around the country. If you look at the growth curve of direct primary care, it's just like entering that hockey stick phase where it starts to go up and up um, because people are sick of their insurance and the weights and all the limitations that are placed on them, for especially for primary care where you're seeing your doctor on a more regular basis. I wanted those relationships to be the focus, not insurance to be the focus. Yeah, I will say I it's... I don't see an MD, I see a NP, but similar model. And I yeah. was so awesome to be able to text your provider and ask them a question. So I think definitely unique. I'd be curious what you're hearing in terms of parent feedback on this. Like what are parents thinking about this approach? Um, they love it because it removes all the hassle factors that they were previously experiencing when it comes to, okay, I can't get in with my child's regular doctor for months, so I have to see somebody else in the office. Or my concerns, I have to leave them on a voicemail and pray that I get a call back. And then I'm I'm a teacher and I'm in class and I can't answer the phone. And so it's three days that go on when I just want to find out you know, what sh- I should do for my child's rash that they've had. They just text and it's one text back and forth. When we do surveys, the text messaging is everybody's favorite aspect because it just meets the demands of busy families in our modern world. But we love the way that we're able to just know patients on a more regular basis. If you called in and said, my son Leo needs to be seen, it's not, okay, what's his medical record number? What's his date of birth? All those sorts of things. It's, oh, we know who Leo is. Like I can tell from the mom's voice that there's three moms that have a Leo in our practice. And I can tell we're talking about a toddler here. So toddler Leo, okay, I'm just going to plug them into the schedule and get them in. It's not, it's so much more relationship-based than transactional. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. And I think is hopefully the way of the future. So how do parents, obviously, if they're in Nebraska and near you, connecting with you would be an awesome way to go. But if they're in other states, how do you usually recommend parents going about finding this model? I think Google works great. So I just tell people to Google direct primary care near me and then you can, and pediatric direct primary care. That's for adults too. Like you said, like family medicine was really the ones that started the direct primary care movement and pediatrics is a newer addition to it. But if you just Google direct primary care near me, then that's usually the easiest way. There's a DPC mapper website too, where it has all the practices around the country. And so either of those is a good way to find somebody near you that practices in this model. Oh, awesome. That's super cool. Anything else that you think would be helpful for parents to know about this DPC model? I think parents often wonder, like, why would I pay for that when I already have my health insurance that costs so much and I feel like I get so little with? And what we did when we started is how much are we going to charge per month? We're going to look and we're going to see what's the average spend for a family, especially now because most 
Families have a high deductible plan, so they have to spend $2,000, $4,000, $6,000 before they meet their deductible. What are they spending their money on? By and large, if they don't have an appendectomy or a new baby that year, it's all of those checkups and sick visits and ear infections and sore throats and all those sorts of things that add up. So if we can match the, the cost and then add all of the extra benefits, then the math adds up for most families that it actually is either cost neutral or saves them money over the course of the year. And then on top of that, you just get the small practice. You know who you're talking with. You know who you're seeing each time. You get to text and online appointment schedule. There's all the extra benefits that come and you can pay with your HSA too. So it really makes financial sense for most families, especially if they have a high deductible to consider direct primary care as a way to know how to budget for their family's health care for the year. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. And I think the accessibility sometimes, I, I think that's just so valuable. I know in my practice, that's what I hear too. Yeah. Is the fact that I can go to you versus going to Google is so nice. That's what I say. It's like a psychologist in your pocket. So it's a PD. Exactly. Yep. Parents will text us at two in the morning. They know, like I've told them, you can text me at two in the morning. I don't mind because I'm not going to wake up to your 2 a.m. text, but I know that you're up with your baby because they are feeding or they have a fever and you just want to be able to mentally check that off the list as I reached out to figure out what to do or it was 2 a.m. and I just went onto their website and booked an appointment for the morning. So now I don't have to worry about calling and hoping that I can get in. That's already taken care of and off my list. That's what parents want. And that's what we encourage is, yeah, please, if it helps you, don't put it on the to-do list to call tomorrow. Just text us right now and ask us, you know, how to introduce peanut or egg or whatever it is to your baby when you're starting solid foods. Just text and we'll answer in the morning when we're around, but then it's off your list as something you have to remember to do. Absolutely. Oh, so wonderful. Bill, where can people contact you? What resources do you have? Share a little bit about that. As we, I wrap. would just go to my Instagram is my main place where I put up all my content and there's links there to workshops and other things that I do. But uh, that's where I like to post because that's where my patients' families spend their time when they're on their screens. And so that's where I like to be. Uh, so at Phil Boucher MD is my Instagram handle. Perfect. We'll link that in the show notes. And I know you answer questions all the time. Yes, I do. I love answering questions on Instagram. It's a fun way for me to share my knowledge with parents. And it gives me the opportunity to hear what's on parents' minds. And I actually learn a lot too with the questions that I get because there's, I don't spend a lot of time on social media outside of like my answering questions and things like that. So I don't always, I'm not always hip to all the new trends and the trending things that that parents are being exposed to. So the questions help me to be like, I've never heard of that, but maybe I should look into it because I bet other parents are hearing about that too. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. Thank you so much for your time. This was an awesome conversation. I appreciate it. You bet. All right, y'all. That is a wrap for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. I will see you back here next time. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. 
One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here. And I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye y'all.